No, the coincidence part of it, though, was that with Super Connected, the songs that I was writing, I kind of, I was fascinated in the problems, the mental health problems, you know, that uh, uh, youngsters were having with too much social media, too much screen time, all of that kind of stuff. And um, so I kind of got into that character and was right. And so half of the songs are written from the point of view of somebody suffering with that kind of mental um mental challenges let's call them um and then to find out like two years oh no well four years after i started writing the songs that uh, you know exploring all these mental conditions like a kind of weird method actor and then bang i i'm diagnosed this is like this is so freaking common tim and I, I've just finished a book, coincidentally, uh, on this very topic. And uh, is this the one you told me about that you were going to yeah, start? Can... Creativity, yeah. And this is the one I've been wanting to write for for years, ever since I wrote Time Loops. I mean, I had a few chapters in there on writers, but I really, I thought, wow, this is a huge topic because you know, not people have written before about oh, weird coincidences between novels and things yeah. playing out in real life, but no one to my knowledge has actually made the argument that wait maybe that's what inspiration is that this is not just some accidental thing that occasionally happens maybe when you know when when, when people feel inspired maybe that's precognition maybe that's always precognition and that's kind of yeah. i like to push this kind of like extreme uh view but i've got so many freaking examples of this kind of thing and uh and what's and it's always see most of the people point to like you know artworks that prophesy some public event but the vast majority are prophesying something like really meaningful in your own life that's going to happen and usually there's like a positive and negative component to it um you, it's not like you know precog you know usually you're not precognizing something terrible like your death but lots of artists do that there's plenty of examples of that but um, oh my god so you've been researching artists yeah. and yeah. pre-cognitive yeah. dreaming and yeah it's not just and the thing is that what i'm talking about in this book is not like dreams i'm talking about mm. uh although there are famous cases of artists getting an idea in a dream you know there's plenty of examples of that but but just the act of of doing your doing your craft and particularly that moment of inspiration you know like you know any artist knows mm. And they're in the zone and it's like holy shit i can't are, wait i can't like, wait oh my to God. read it it's like, like it's this this natural force um yeah. that that flows through you and uh uh and it's funny that psychics who you know people like remote viewers for instance or mediums or or i'm listening i'm just pouring tea yeah that's fine um their sort of experience of psychic information, whether wherever they imagine that it's coming from, is very similar. It's almost exact. It's described in exactly the same terms as artists, you know, famously describing their their moments of of creative inspiration. And it has that feeling. The book is called From Nowhere, okay, because it feels like this came. From That's nowhere. the title of your new book. That's. Well, that's the working title. We'll see what a publisher decides because they usually have the last word on that. But sure. uh, 
but yeah, the book is called From Nowhere. And it's sort of both about this idea of, you know, the, the feeling of a creative inspiration being like, this is just out of the blue, you know, this just came to me. I don't own this thing. You know, it's like yeah. famous John Lennon talked about uh, when uh, Across the Universe came to him, you know, he was just laying in bed with Cynthia. Yes. And, uh, and suddenly the, this line, um, uh, pools of sorrow, waves of joy, you know, came to him and like, it just, it was just out of the, out of nowhere. And he like had to get out of bed and go downstairs and start writing it out. And it just poured out of him, just like the song says, it's like words are flowing out like endless rain and the whole thing just poured out of him, you know, like, and he described it like being like a medium. It was That's like one of the first Beatles songs I learned actually. It was his favorite song as a Beatle because, and he said this in an interview just before he died, that he liked the inspired stuff, the stuff that felt like it was coming, like mm. he was a psychic and that he, the stuff that he didn't feel like he owned because it was, yeah. you know. Uh, it was different to the early stuff, which was to, yeah. to do with yeah, like very workmanlike. I'm just going to adjust the light. Well, actually, you're already recording. I'll just keep the lighting the same. Um, but anyway... So I've got like, here's, here is one of the examples. I've got a lot of examples in the book, some of which are like very obvious and very convincing. Others yeah. are going to go, people are going to go, hmm. But I'm like, I am so sure of this one. Um, so I assume you saw Get Back. Yeah, I lived with it. Oh, I lived, I lived so. Get Back. <laughs> I, lived, I lived with it. And then I bought the book, the coffee, the coffee table book. And me and my kids just spent every day looking at those pictures. Mm. And I just like, it was like, oh my God, I was like yeah. heaven watching that. Time That was a time travel yeah, yeah. kind of but experiment of deep here's the thing. joy. Okay. Here's, here's my, like this, this is the example I'm, I'm, I'm like so excited to get people's reaction to this, but okay. So you know how the first episode ends, right? Is this a spoiler for your book though? Yeah, it is. But, and I, <laughs> oh, well, I guess whatever, who cares? It's okay. so the first episode ends how with uh okay well the first episode is is all about basically paul sort of noodling on this idea yeah getting somebody to get back you know get back get back you know and they kind of figure out after a couple of days that like he's from arizona like he's leaving home they, they sort of like trying to work out who's this guy getting back then they figure out it's jojo okay so jojo blah 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 blah. get back get back to where he once belonged okay so what happens uh, and then, and then John Lennon adds, uh, and I forget the date. I think I have all the dates here. I think it was January 9th. This happens. Um, uh, John Lennon says he adds a line, but he knew it wouldn't last. Okay. Well, that lunch is when George Harrison gets up, walks out and says, see you around the pubs, see you around the clubs guys, but leaves the band that day. And so they have to pay two visits to his country home to persuade him to get back. Wow. Right? And oh, wow. Gosh, I didn't spot that. Right. And uh, and adding to it, like this wasn't the what made him leave, but it was certainly had to have been part of the kind of contributing factor. Yeah. You know, the, the line, get back, get back to where he wants to belong, actually came from one of his songs, uh, Sour Milk Sea. That he had, uh, he had did, yes. I don't, he recorded it. He gave it to another artist to record. And anyway, but Paul basically took that line, you know, tweaked it a little bit and sort of made it his own line, a, a line of a song that would be ultimately credited to him and, and Lennon, you know. But anyway, so 
all of a sudden they're having to per persuade George Harrison, which sounds like Arizona, <laughs> to, <laughs> to <laughs> get back to where he once belonged. You know, and it's like this is how it works. This this kind of like subtle kind of shaping. Do you know what what you're saying reminds me a bit of how you talked about puns. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. In in yeah. dreams, when when the pun can be, I've forgotten the great example you 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 had, uh, but but yeah, uh, yeah. Well, dreams operate on puns; they operate on a pun language. But this is similar in a similar. There's kind of like multi-layered meanings. Yes, yeah, and there's so much when you when you like pull back from the like the big examples like novels predicting the Titanic disaster or you know a million a million artworks you know, predicted 9-11 and so on. But when you pull back from those things and you start taking a close, like biographical focus on the artist mm. and uh, and you look at how their uh, works, especially their early works, I find it's like, it's, it's easiest to see this, especially in early works. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, so many examples of works that then come true either very obviously sort of in a very clear way or maybe it's a kind of in a honey oblique way but the same way with dreams it's the same as dreams um and so that's the argument in the book but i mean there's so many examples of this and you know there's some pretty well-known ones if you get online you can find a million of them but like yeah like victor browner he was a romanian painter romanian uh painter in the 30s and in 1930 i think he uh, painted a picture of a self-portrait of himself with one like uh, um, dead eye or his or like a, a an eye that blinded in one eye, but he was not blinded in one eye. I mean, he, but he he became obsessed with this idea of having just one eye, and so he painted himself with just one eye, and then he painted a lot of portraits of other people with with one eye. He painted a portrait of of Adolf Hitler with a dagger in his eye and mm. things like that. And then in 1938, he was in a bar, I guess he was in a bar and he interceded in a fight between two friends of his who were two surrealist painters. And one yeah. of them threw, threw a mug at the other one and it hit him and put out his eye. So for eight years, he's painting pictures of himself and other people with missing an eye. And do you and think, do you think of, of that as the, as manifestation? No, no, no. It's precognition. It's precognition. It's, it's, it was like, going to happen anyway. Yeah, it's going to happen, but he can't know how it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, it's just same with dreams. And I yeah. talk about this in my dream book, and I write about it again with the art book that that we can't get clear pictures of the future. You can't get a you know, especially a, of an outcome that I could act to prevent because yeah. that was the grandfather parents, right? I have to ask you: Did you see Indiana Jones? No, not yet. The new one, no. <laughs> It was when 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 it I won't spoil it obviously, but I, when it finished, I, I like spoilers. Don't worry. Yeah, when it finished, I turned around to Kate and said, "Eric's gonna love this. It's time loops." We were like, "Somebody, awesome. somebody in the script writing room has read your book, Time Loops." Oh, okay, hundred percent. Because well, I won't say it, but there's a beautiful example of what you've you know written so much about 
oh, uh, awesome. in, okay. in that film. I don't know who came up with it, or maybe they don't know uh, that I've seen it like that. But I, I think it's fairly obvious. It's it really is the loop that's there. It's beautiful. Awesome, yeah. awesome. awesome. Okay, well, I'll watch it then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's real. You know, this is real. Yeah. And and uh, I think. I don't know. I'm 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 hopeful that people will start paying atten more attention to it. Um, partly because of the UFO thing <laughs> that's happening. It's like people are a little bit more open-minded to like, okay, some of this weird stuff is real. <laughs> and uh and I think, you know, I think precognition could go along with that. I mean, so many people have these experiences. And um I've yeah. talked to so many artists like yourself who've had these experiences in their own life. In my book, I'm sort of trying to I'm just focusing on kind of, you know, the the kind of fame cases that you could you could go to a person's biography and see you know you know mm. what happened but like what you what's happened to you now both both with the the diagnosis thing and yeah. now this 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 i had thing i mean i wasn't i didn't put those two together i wasn't really focused following the whole apple thing but so can you remind yes. me so your album came out two weeks before what's the apple product called it's the, called the vision pro Vision Pro. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is incredible because not only like, okay, there are a lot of cases where like a science fiction writer will predict some invention or whatever, like Philip K. Dick, for instance, yes. you know, he wrote a story in like, I think it was 1960 or something early sixties about an, uh, these entrepreneurs building an, uh, a robot, Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Yeah. And, um, but nobody would take, no publisher would take the book so he just it just left stayed in his desk drawer because no one so no one read this read the story especially nobody at disney but two years later disney unveiled its animatronic abraham lincoln it's like it's it's uh most popular friendly wow i didn't know about you know. that well but but it goes beyond that though um the story kind of centers on the the one of the characters kind of obsessive relationship to this young woman who they hire to kind of like give verisimilitude to this Lincoln android. And there's like a scene where she stays up late at night applying makeup to its face and so on, like to to like make it super real. Okay. So like 10 years later, all right, Philip K. Dick, he 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 wrote this story. He was in Northern California and all that, but like he winds up living in uh, in Orange County, in uh, uh, in the LA area, and he winds up he he meets uh, this young woman in his apart in his apartment building, and it turns out she works at Disneyland. And he goes, "Oh, great! What do you do at Disneyland?" "Oh, I I service the uh, the animatronic Lincoln at night. I I stay up at night and I apply makeup to its face, you know, so that it looks fresh and real." in the morning, <laughs> you know, just insane, like insanely detailed, you know, things like that, you know, but there are a lot, a million stories about, you know, people predicting, you know, technological developments over it, but it's the specificity that matters here. And what what's cool in your case is that uh, you didn't just predict some headset product, you predicted an Apple headset product because you called it the eye head i mean it's like you're implicitly you know and everything mm. about the, the video i mean should i tell you how that came about sure yeah i mean so i i started writing the songs for the album in 20 late 2016 
and um and you know super connected with started becoming a whole kind of concept quite quickly and um but at the same time somebody had said to me a lot of friends were just saying at that time everyone's just got phones stuck to their heads these days you know it was something people i'm sure people have said that to you and i kept hearing it so much that as i as i do with songs you know with with lyrics when people say things and repeat things i they go in my lyric book and they generally end up in one of my songs and so when people kept saying that i did start doing sketches of people with like just phones you know literally stuck to their head um and then i started working on this song called start with the sound which is the first track on the album and that had um the idea that sound was kind of becoming less important than visuals in the world you know where people find it easy to watch an hour of netflix not so easy to listen to an hour of music without finding something that feels more important to interrupt the music with you know so I got uh, obsessed with this like looking and hearing and looking and hearing thing and as I was writing and recording the song I started thinking about the the phones stuck to one's head um and um and this is nothing to do with Apple at, at all it was just phones you know um and then I and then I thought, well, maybe for the video. So I'm literally recording the song and and kind of script writing the video in my head of somebody who goes to a, a department store or, or a big company uh, who've got a new kind of thing that you put on your head, and it and it makes you be able to hear and appreciate sound again. Uh, but actually, what they're doing is taking your data, you know. It's a, just a, a funny kind of sketch idea. As it happened, that ended up turning into an entire feature film, which isn't out yet. But, uh, but you know, um, as I've done it, I've got I got to the end of doing the song. So I want to make this video. And so I'm, I'm, I met this lady who's a, a kind of legend in the special effects business. She's a sculptor and artist, Valerie Charlton. She worked with Spielberg and... Uh, did all of Terry Gilliam's films, the Brazil, you know, and uh, and asked her how to do it. Cut a long story short, she said, "Let me make this for you." Um, and by that point, I'd already started calling it. She said, "What's it called?" And I said, "Well, I'm calling it an eye head." <laughs> and she just laughed, and we just—it wasn't—it was an eye head. I, you know, I'm on a Mac here. There's a Mac behind me. I've, I'm like since 1997 using apple products mm -hmm. couldn't live without them you know there's no kind of um spurious um intention right. with with calling it an eye head it's funny yeah. and uh, and people get it you know it's like because of the eye products but um but but this was all done in 2019 and we filmed what was going to be a music video became an hour and 20 minute feature film uh which is key around you know it's it's centered around mental health and the way we navigate our digital lives in respect of mental health and um and the balance we talked about it before between being uh embodied in our lives you know when we're really uh with each other and really connected or whether we're silently communicating and disembodied you know so it's kind of like phenomenal world digital world 
how is it going to pan out in the end? And and this I had becomes a really important part of that story in the film. All done in 2019. Like any other solo artist or or band, mm-hmm. you've got an album ready to go in 2019. You're releasing it in 2020, right? Wrong. Lockdown, pandemic. So, you know, so this has been ready for four years. And uh, last year I got diagnosed with autism and that kind of made me think, I, I wanted time to process that. And so for the first time in my life, I, I just didn't go crazy trying to get my record out. And, and that's why it ended up coming out now, you know, 2023. I like the number 23. So that, so that worked out quite well. But um, literally, I think three weeks after I released the album and the lead single was, was what it was always meant to be, start with the sound and the eye head. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, someone called me up and said, have you seen this? I was like, what is it? And I said, it's Apple's new headset. It's called a Vision Pro. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was just sort of like, really? What is that? So you tell me. I mean, I'll talk about what's happened this week afterwards, but what? Did, but I'm fascinated to hear what you think about that coincidence. Yeah, that's what I was getting at with that specificity thing. Like, you're not just, you didn't just, you know, precognize someone making a headset somewhere. I mean, you know, the point is you you precognized a, an Apple product by calling it, I had, you know, it's implicitly um, an Apple product. And, you know, the aesthetic of the ad is kind of Apple, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it looks, you know, you're, everyone's going to think, you know, Apple and that's what's so clever and funny about it you know because they're they you know they're the ones that that yes and I wanted to make it a beautiful thing that was sort of irresistible as well as a bit silly and of course their products are beautiful that's why it's got all the sort of swirly stuff on it exactly exactly I mean it, it, it is beautiful but the thing is you predicted not only that but you but the fact it became like salient in your life because of that timing, you know, because of that, you know, that it happens like right after your, your, you know, video comes out or your, your album comes out, um, they release this product. So there's this holy shit factor mm. with it. That's make, that's like already like sending, you know, information to your past right there. But then the fact that Apple decides to, to not release it on their their whatever you call it, their uh, platform. Um, on Apple Music. On Apple Music, right. Like, boom, it's like this personal, almost like a personal attack <laughs> on on you and on your album. It makes it incredibly personal. See, we precognize these things that, that, that happen to us, but there's always this kind of like equivocal thing to them. There's like a, a bad side and a good side. Now, mm. you know, they... And apparently they're reversing this decision, I take it. Are we not supposed to say that? I've told you, but I can say it now. You right. know, you are the second person I've told. Apple Music have accepted Super Connected. Right. So it's like I don't know if you need to sit. Look, it's there. You can just all imagine. right. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Probably I can see out it. of focus. But so that's I mean, like this is, this, is, this is today. This happened today. I'm like, you know, this is 
It's really amazing. I'll, t- I'll explain how that ended up happening because I, I honestly, it's been six months and I just, I've, I've been through a, a really horrible experience trying to do this. And I'll say this now, it's, it turns out to be nobody's fault. It's no, it's not Apple's fault. And, you know, I have, I, because if you're an independent artist, you don't go to Apple. You have a, a third party sort of company that works with you. And I've got one that's called, they're called Ditto Music. And back in January, when I was so, after like four years, I was like, finally, I'm going to release the album. I was so looking forward to it. I'm putting, uploading it. And it takes hours, actually, encoding all these things. And I'm really bad at it. And I get it wrong about six times before because of my um, executive function and all that. It's really not good. But finally, after that sort of was all done the songs were ready and it was like send and immediately the next day there is a problem with your release and it was this was an automated thing automated oh ai yeah yeah and and not this isn't that's not for apple that's for all the streaming services and so um so i wrote to this that the lady who's the head of support at ditto music who has helped me for i don't know six seven years she's amazing and to be honest i couldn't i couldn't upload all the stuff that i've done without her help and i just said what's the problem and they said it's there's an advert track or something you've got an advert on here and i said okay i said well the the, the album's a story it's like a concept album from beginning to end there's a story and it goes with a film and and that's the kind of midpoint you know, this track that's called a commercial break because I kind of wanted to, the story is quite heavy. <laughs> it's quite, you know, it's very moving. And, um, and I just needed that sort of midway point and something, and, you know, a light advert about the eye head, which is in another, one of the songs. And Stephen Fry did this beautiful, um, uh, narration which i'd written and I'd, I'd, i hadn't thought of, to write it for Stephen, but i wrote it using greek mythology and and all this kind of thing and uh, and of course i thought like, oh my god he would sound amazing and he very kindly accepted my request to record it so i was for four years was thinking this is going to be great they're going to love this <laughs> put it out it's you know i was so proud of it um and then that was it. And I was into, I would say, you know, 30 to 50 emails between me, friends. I don't have a record label. I just have friends that help me. And and since I was diagnosed, they they really understand why they've been helping me most of my career. Because <laughs> I do have a lot of problems with managing uh, communications when it's silent. Like, this is great, but I can't deal with things in boxes for more than 10 minutes you know trying to type and so um and yeah so i fought and fought and fought and fought and eventually uh they said yeah great it can be on all the streaming services uh but not apple so i just said why and they and they it it, i wasn't getting an answer um but they just said it will be ticketed by apple and it's it's a no go was the word, and this this word it's a no go has been like a like a brand on on my forehead for for six months. And two weeks ago, um, the album's done really well, and it got all these reviews that I never thought it was going to get. It's been really beautiful, and I thought 
this should be on Apple. This it turns out to be a much more loved, successful um, album than I expected. I knew I liked it, but I didn't really think all these other music writers and, and things would like it. And so I said, okay, I'll put the album on without that song that's got the problem. And she said, okay, you need to do this. And then as I started physically just to re-upload the album, I just felt sick. And I realized that, you know, my music, the albums that I make are very, they're very, uh, part, very much part of my autism. It's like it, there's a regulation in, in, in doing it and it has to be the way I've intended it to be. And um, I couldn't do it. And I, I thought, what, what else can I do? So I, I, I launched a public campaign to, I wrote an open letter to Apple and, um, and asked people to help me like that. I once asked people to help me uh, with a campaign I did to try and save Soho from developers and, um, and people gave their signatures and quite notable people. And um, so I did the same thing. And then this week it's, it just, it all blew up in the, and people in the press started talking about it and the, the articles that you you saw about the eye head. Um, and uh, I've, I can't say how, but um, I have had some contact with Apple, which has got nothing to do with um, Ditto music. And uh, because, you know, it's not their fault um, and it's not Ditto music's fault either. Um, what I do think it, it, it is part, part, partly to blame is silent communications on technology without being embodied. It's the system that the, the, the entire album of Superconnected is about, is that we just need to rebalance how much we communicate with each other without actually seeing or hearing each other, because it was a miscommunication. And... Um, I am pleased to say Apple have put it back. They put it on the platform, so I'm I'm very happy. Well, that's fantastic, and that's a third way that your album is prophetic. You know, third way it's precognitive. I think of this situation, but what this whole situation is just this kind of draw, this kind of convoluted drama. You know, that's that that is you know frustrating, pain in the ass. But ultimately, has sort of a good ending. Events in our lives that we precognize are, are are big upheavals, but they often have kind of a positive and a negative dimension to them. Uh, often they're like some minor catastrophe, but it could be worse, um, or it's something that has both, you know, some kind of bad or embarrassing situation, mm -hmm. maybe, but that ultimately has a, a good outcome. Uh, that kind of thing is what the precognitive imagination somehow focuses on. And uh, I, I think ultimately, and this delves into the theory of, of how this works, and we don't really know, but yeah. ultimately, I think this is, this is a survival function. It, it focuses, uh, it orients us to situations in which we have survived something. Now, Obviously, that could have real existential implications, and especially if you're a hunter-gatherer on Savannah, you know, you know, survival is a real, real thing. You know, it's like you're facing the struggle to survive every day. Most of us, you know, our lives are a little bit more boring 
than than that. You know, and things we survive are you know embarrassing situations at work or embarrassing interpersonal situations or uh, a professional you know crisis like you've just experienced. Yeah. You know, you said at the beginning of the our conversation, you, you were talking about uh, your book is focusing on inspiration yeah. and where that comes from. And I just wondered through your lens what it looks like. The situation I've had with Apple is that obviously the iHead has, I don't think it has, has anything to do with, you know, the iHead and the Vision Pro thing. I think that's, but, but Apple inspired me. To have it partly inspired me, I think. Uh, well, of course, because I kind of modeled it using old iPhones and stuff um, to begin with. And then to, to come up this week and having had indirect uh, but significant contact with, with somebody uh, that, that is quite high up, it's quite senior position at Apple. And and there's that is weird connection. <laughs> That's exactly it. Apple did inspire you, and not in the way you were imagining that it inspired you. Yeah, the I mean, this has been a gift. The fact that they've—I yeah. just thought I've made something that's that's caused such a glitch in the system that I'll never feel the same about Apple again. I can't even explain it. It just feels so weird and and a bit magical that this has all happened and. Uh, and um and then talking to you about it in context it was that person that tweeted about <laughs> this songwriter seen something in the future and apple don't like it and it's right. like and it made me think that they must have been working on the um the vision pro for a long time as well and uh and, and potentially if it was if they've been working on it for four years then we both started working on our um, right. devices at the same time right Right. But you're just finding out about it, you know, <laughs> now, yeah. coincidentally, weeks, you know, what, what is it? You, you said three weeks after your album was released. That they... Yeah, I think they released the Vision Pro in the, uh, early June and my album wow. came out on the 5th of May. Yeah. So I, I think anyone in my position who's told categorically, you can't, you'd absolutely, it's never going to be on Apple. Um, and, and then you see the Vision Pro come out and you kind of go, oh, right, the track that says I had on my album is 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 the reason i can't have my album on apple and then they released the vision pro the coincidence is insane it's yeah insane. well you know that's another thing it doesn't really matter what the reality is mm. in your perception you know at the time in your perception apple was doing this because x you know and that you know mm. became then part of the narrative for you even if it's turned out to be something completely different and that too is part of the part of the narrative yeah. that's all wrapped up into this this bundle that got shot back in time you yeah. know for four years what would be really cool is if you could go back into your notes and somehow figure out the actual date that the idea for the I had first came to you. Mm -hmm. Now you said that it was sort of kind of an evolving idea, but if there, if there were somehow like some moment where. I, 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 do you know, I do. I, I, I don't know it off by heart. I've got it. I have got it as a date and you know why? Because the, it, it all kind of came together in my head on one day. And um, the first thing that I wanted to do was get these old um, eight millimeter cameras from the late 60s 
to use i wanted to the eye head was meant to be retro futurist i mean it's kind of you know it's it's a it's a jokey thing that looks a bit like doc an old seven 1970s sci-fi doctor who or um <laughs> you know and um and i wanted it to be like terry gilliam's material um when it looks retro future you know and so i got these 60s cameras and i thought i'll mix those up with old iphones and mm -hmm. and and i bought one of those on ebay for, for like nothing it was, i don't know it was like 10 pounds or something it was broken mm -hmm. i didn't need a working one and um I've, i'll have the ebay <laughs> receipt for that look up that ebay receipt because what what often happens not always but what often happens with dreams is that you will precognize an event on the same day of the year as the later you know like an event exactly a year oh, later really? exactly 20 years later i mean believe it or not this happens people have uh, a, a dream about a very significant life event mm. uh it's i've had ones that were like 18 years in the future do you like, know in all my the day, dream, dream the journals day. i've never thought to do that i've i'm it's, always date them but i i should have a look yes it's fascinating and this is not i i noticed this in my own dreams because i've kept a dream journal for decades and it was you know it yeah. was in the last 10 years or so that i've gotten even been aware of precognitive dreaming and then noticed this thing where oh my gosh you know big events in my life uh i have dreamed about to the day or within a day or two on either side uh exactly you know sometimes decades i mean seriously or sometimes exactly a year or exactly two year, years oh. and then when i started working with other precognitive dream workers and people who have regular precognitive dreams people who've been keeping a detailed record for years they notice the same thing it's really it's part of the phenomenon somehow yeah. but my guess is it works the same with inspiration like those moments of inspiration it's a hypothesis and I haven't been able to test it yet because, you know, very few people keep a dated dream journal, way fewer people keep a dated journal of when they got an idea for a work of art, you know? Yeah. But if you do have some kind of receipt <laughs> that has a date, do. Like, like do. An receipt, that's exactly the kind I of thing. Just, just look, I'm, I'm really super curious. And, and yeah, so that would have been the sort of formulation. I would probably been yeah. like, like having little ideas of this thing for, I don't know, maybe six months to a year uh -huh. uh, when it called, when I finished the song, start with the sound and, 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 and the, the idea of this thing like being put on your head. <laughs> so, that was I, I gotta get i'm gonna see if i can and i found this yeah this um camera that was the beginning of it so i'll find out yeah, yeah. gosh seeing it through that lens is fascinating i mean do, do you i might have asked you this before but block time theory mm -hmm. is this related to that yeah it is yeah um uh and this is an idea that goes back to einstein and it's really not disputed by most physicists. I mean, it's pretty much uh, acknowledged in the physics world that, yeah, we live in a four-dimensional space-time continuum. And actually, some now say that there's more dimensions than even four. But uh, at the very least, there's, you know, three dimensions of, of space and one dimension of time. And it, that that what that means is even though we experience kind of time as unfolding, you know, there's there is a set future in front of us just the same way there's a set past in front of us 
Um, and uh, people don't like hearing that because it's somehow, well, wait a minute, does that mean we don't have free will, all that, you yes. know, all kinds of those dimensions and, you know, it's a big kettle of worms, but um, can of worms, whatever, I'm mixing my metaphor. I like a kettle of worms. <laughs> kettle of fish, whatever. <laughs> uh, but what it means is, yes, the, 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 the universe is this gigantic block uh, and Alan Moore likes to call it a glass football, glass football, because you had to go from the, 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 the big bang and it expands and then it comes together in a crunch. So it's sort of a big, gigantic football shape. <laughs> and uh, But whatever you want to call it, it's a solid uh, four dimensional thing. And our lives, we are really these kind of snakes that kind mm. of wend their way through that glass football. And, um, and so what we experience at a given moment is a cross section. You know, if you took a slice through that football, you know, what we're experiencing now is our 3D reality, mm -hmm. really a cross section of that 4D, you know, thing, a slice uh, at a given moment in time. Now, why we experience things the way we do in kind of a sequence that feels like uh, the past is set, but the future is open. That's an open question. And, and you know, no one has a good answer to it yet. Yeah. Uh, but, but. Einstein thought that that was going to ultimately fall in the category of perceptual illusions. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are all kinds of fascinating perceptual illusions that are, you know, you know, we are our perception is shaped in all kinds of strange ways. We don't see the reality as it is, and I'm yeah. I have a feeling that Einstein's right that that you know why we perceive time as marching in a single direction and perceive our lives as progressing in a single direction, that's going to turn out to be some kind of perceptual cognitive illusion, is my guess. Um, but yeah, we live in a block universe. And the fact that there is a... Everything's actually happening all at once. Well, that's way. one way of looking at it. Or you can simply say there's all the future's already set. The future's there ahead yes. of us. And, and because... Oh, no, I'm remembering now our first conversation. Yes, what, when only you now said, remembering. <laughs> I know, no, I'm re-remembering. Re uh, yes, because I'd well, I told you when I was little that I I used to look at life as a sequence of events that I was fulfilling because part of me was an old man looking backwards and kind of trying to draw my younger self to the places that he's meant to be in. Right, and you wrote some poems, right? The yeah. To your, yeah to your older and I self still, sorry there were poems that you wrote as a boy to your older self is that right or there were poems you wrote from the point of view of your yeah oldest... i i did write as a youngster i wrote i wrote some things and i recorded some things speaking to myself when i was older yeah oh. which i then listened to when i was <laughs> older <laughs> yeah it's putting those on Twitter for a while i remember that's how we connected because you were you that's had a it that's right the child bard yeah child that's it and i subscribed to you on twitter because yeah I yeah and then that's how we yeah yeah that's how I, that we, we crossed paths yeah um but yeah i mean even from from the first time i read about your i think it's at the beginning of time loops about the titanic yeah mm -hmm. all of that stuff it was it's made so much sense to me in 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 a in a different sense making area of my brain, but but well, yeah, the most, the most famous instance of what we're talking about, of what I you know will sometimes call artistic prophecy, just to, to put a label on it, mm. is uh, a nineteen uh, I'm sorry an eighteen ninety eight novel called 
utility by a science fiction writer named Morgan Robertson, who wrote about the gigantic, the, the biggest ocean liner ever called the Titan that collides with an iceberg on an April night and goes down carrying almost all the passengers because there's too few lifeboats. And of course, 14 years later, the identity and and it's on a run from in this case New York to to Liverpool, which is exactly the mirror image of the real wow. Titanic. Wow. Okay, it's the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> adding to the weirdness, just a few weeks ago, we had another Titan that was the name of the submersible that that was lost visiting the Titanic. No, <laughs> I didn't know about that. Yes, this was uh it was all over the news in the United States. Um, it was this was. Uh, a company taking, you know, very rich passengers down to the Titanic wreckage in a very rickety submersible that really wasn't like uh, good enough for those depths. But anyway, it's not, been not like weird. the one James Cameron had. Oh no, no, no! But anyway, it, uh, you know, James Cameron is pretty weirded out by by all this because you know a friend of his was on the on the submersible. A couple of billionaires were. We're on it. Uh, unfortunately, wow. 19 year old son was with him. It was really terrible. And uh, uh, but yeah, that it was uh, lost, but it was called the Titan. Now, it's not such a great coincidence that it was called the Titan because it was designed to visit the Titanic. But still, sure. you know, that was the name of the of the the ocean liner in this novel by Morgan Robertson in 1898 um, that, uh, you know, that predicted the Titanic disaster. But the thing is, people don't realize there were a million stories and novels and things like that of the time that seemed to also predict the disaster they didn't get the name of the ship right but they predicted yes other... and all those people having dreams the night before the yeah, week before yeah. tons of people had dreams and then of course uh with uh the internet and things in our day the number of predictions of 9-11 were is just astronomical i mean there's so many yeah. predicted it in dreams and fiction and paintings uh one of the cases in my book is a sculptor who died his his studio was on the 92nd floor of tower one uh and he he made sculptures he'd been making sculptures for a few years uh self-portrait sculptures of himself as a tuskegee airman um wearing a flight suit and in this one he was he's standing vertically standing vertical like a kind of like a board or like a building and he's being impaled by planes. Oh my God! Died on nine eleven. I mean, a, there's so many cases like this. Wild. This is, this is you know, skeptics will say, "Oh, well, that's just a coincidence." Well, all all the time. It's it's interesting, actually. It's great to talk to you again, and um, and and I'm just realizing that something that I started to notice around the time we first met which was i think 2021 um i didn't talk to you about it at the time because i could i couldn't quite articulate it but now i've noticed and it is it's still to do with a lot of what Superconnect is about with the album sort of preoccupation with social media and and how we're sort of becoming less embodied and um and i've i i've noticed this in, in the last year that time doesn't seem to matter in social media anymore. I remember when Facebook started, well, I don't know, is it 15 years ago now? Uh, it, it was, I'm doing this today. Um, and uh, last week I did this. And, you know, there's, there's a very, 
and now I've I, everything I well, this is my experience. Other people might have other. Maybe it's just my algorithm. <laughs> I don't know. But but it but it seems you can say anything anytime, and it it doesn't. None of us kind of are registering it in terms of it mattering when anything happened. Does this resonate with you at all? In in terms of it's not exactly what you're talking about, but it's similarly. I mean, I I think I'm having the experience, and I think a lot of people have had the experience since the COVID lockdowns. Yeah, there's now that it's we're, after that. So many of us are are living and working at home. That time just is racing by, and that every day is like you're, you're, it feels like Groundhog Day. You know, it feels like every day is the same, and there's no variety. Yeah. And so it does feel kind of timeless. It's um, a timeless I, zone, I, I find. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I share things um, sometimes uh, that have got nothing to do with my work, and that's mainly why I'm on social media. But, yeah. um, but sharing things that where it, it, nobody realizes or really minds that, that they think it's happening to me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like... Right. There's something from five years ago and, oh, I was there last night too. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 there's, a, uh, it's, there's no consideration. I, I do the same thing with other people. I say, oh, why didn't you tell me you were um, on the next road from me last night? Oh, no, that was, uh, that was in 2016 or something. You know. Right. <laughs> there's a, it's such a weird um, a, a feeling of timelessness. That's really interesting. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah. It's just a feeling. I might be the only one who feels like that. I don't know. I don't know. I might, you know, my, because since, since COVID, my perception of time has just really, it's, it's timeless, but not, I don't engage with social media very much except for Twitter. That's like the one thing that I've kind of yeah. clung on to. <laughs> um, but. Well, just, I left, I left like, everything for a year. I could because I, I mentally couldn't cope with it. Mm. I only really rejoined because you know I, I'm putting out this album and I I I need to reach people. But um, yeah, that that period is um, from with, with COVID. Was, yeah, t time changed. Yeah, online and offline. <laughs> Everywhere. Yeah. I don't feel it's not it's not it's not gone back to what it used to be. Time. No. No, and who knows? I, it just feels like very much a limbo, like right now, in so many ways. Um, like, what are we? We're in, in between things right now, somehow, and I don't know what's next. And I don't. I'm not sure. I want to know. <laughs> it's, uh, things don't. You're, <laughs> you, 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 you just you're described as a science writer, but you've you you are qualified in in scientific. I'm a I'm an interdisciplinary writer. I I, I my day job is a science writer, um, but yeah. But my you know my books on precognition are very much interdisciplinary. I mean I really think you need you need everything. You need you know yeah it helps to to understand you know a little bit about neuroscience and physics and all yeah. these things. But you yeah. Got so you know all the subjects that I just I don't know I and, and couldn't do at school. A, a reason I'm, I'm asking is all of all these subjects that you're like deeply immersed in um, as a study and exploration. Uh, have you have you got to a point where where you have 
um, maybe thought how you could use that information to change the way we live? Well, my, you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really sneaky smile. <laughs> you know, I realized. Are there experiments? <laughs> I think that the best I can do is through my writing, through my art, I, I realized this a few years ago, like very belatedly in life that I, oh, I'm an artist is what I am. And that's how I treat my writing. Mm. That's what I, you know, I, I'm, I'm very it's a craft much, what you're doing, the yeah. craft, but it's also this, it's, you get these inspirations following inspiration. It's, it's uh, being creative. It's very creative. So like, I will, I will sort of dryly call myself a science writer to make me sound kind of more legitimate, like, oh, mm. I'm, I'm it's evidence-based or whatever. Well, you know, there, you know, yeah, I, I try to marshal evidence very, but, but what I'm doing is an art. And as like any artist, I'm trying to reach people and change the way they think, mm. not, not in a, that's not the way to put it. I'm trying to reach people and inspire them. Yeah. And, you know, that's what inspired art does. It inspires you when you encounter it and uh and it changes you somehow and i think that's you know i don't i don't have a huge audience at this point you know because my i've had only small publishers at this point you know and trying to trying to improve that <laughs> with the next book but you know i it's the most rewarding thing is to you know get an email from someone's like oh wow your book changed my life mm. and you know so i'm trying to reach people in that that's what an artist is trying to do so basically i'm trying to change yeah. people how they think about themselves yeah. and what they do now, like in the past, it was how they think about their dreams, you know, but how do they think about their art? That's an even bigger thing because we're all, I mean, even if we don't do art consciously, uh, in some way, we're all artists in our lives. I mean, we're all bringing creativity to just the daily life. Very much. I think that like just yeah. being a parent, like I have two little kids and I've discovered that I'm, you know, I'm bringing all this artistic, uh, skill or, not even necessarily skills, often an absence of skill, but I'm bringing in a kind of an artistic sensibility to it, you know? Yeah, like and practices. I'm using improv. Yeah, you know, I took an improv class, you know, over a decade ago, but now I now use all those improv skills that I learned, uh, you know, minute to minute with small children. I mean, that's what you need, you know? And, and, and so it's like, it's artistry, you know, whatever you're doing in life, you're bringing creativity. Mm -hmm. And, it's a uh, lot of what you do that is is um, similar to what I do um, and other musicians. It's a lot of pattern making, yeah, and understanding relationships between yeah. patterns, isn't it? Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. I realized this when I first started kind of reaching out to the autistic community and a, a couple of hubs that have been so helpful. Um, and yeah, pattern making is is everything in terms of creativity and, and and when you become inspired that's what you do with whatever the inspiration is it, it's immediately you 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 identify a, the pattern that's emerging and then you create more to go with it and like you were talking about dates and and you know connecting those dots it, it, yeah. super connected i you know it's <laughs> funny when i i when you first started talking about this album i think you were I feel like you were talking about it a couple of years ago when we. Yeah, talked. because that's what the because the reason because of not being able to put it out because of the pandemic. Um, that's why I started the podcast. I thought, well, if I can't go out and and sing and perform or um, and, and release uh, the music, 
in in an in any kind of ecology that would support it because there wasn't one the music industry just closed and i would say industry but just any kind of culture the music culture just just you know paused mm -hmm. i thought well i'll talk to people about what i've been doing <laughs> yeah. so that's why it was called super connected conversations and i thought i'll talk to people that inspired the record and and then i'll talk to people that are that are working on different ways of connecting that's and that's when i asked you i said Do you fancy have chat you know Right. Well, I got the sense, though, that there was a double meaning, though, even then. It was not just connecting to people, but it was also making connections, right? I mean, yeah. that seemed to be part of the the name there, yeah. right? Sense. So Absolutely. I mean, the, the original name came from, uh, I was in Los Angeles uh, for the first time and only time I've been there uh, in 2018. And on, what's it called? Venice Beach which I loved. I'd never been there before. And somebody arrived holding two phones and an iPad and a laptop. And they were on the phone. And this this woman, I just heard as she was sitting down, going, I'm so super connected right now. And um, and it just made me laugh. And I wrote it down. And, and so that, the original meaning was this tech thing. But then I got into all these conversations with Valerie Charlton, who who's the designer of the eye head um he's a deeply really deeply spiritual woman and um my god her, her you'd love her library her, all her books um and uh, and she started talking about the super connectivity of everything and you know mycelia and mm -hmm. and the way that trees in one country talk to trees in another part of the country and under the in the earth and and so or say so yeah it, it's 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 all of those things all of all the meanings <laughs> all at once block meaning right <laughs> well the i found in in researching art and precognition that like musicians are the hardest to study in this regard because really um, what's really helpful is when you have like something that's representational like um when when you have like uh you know a story or something that you can compare then to an event but uh, right yeah the musical qualities of music don't lend themselves to that i mean i i have no doubt that what i'm talking about with other arts applies to musicians just as much but how do you pin that down and like show so that show that some musical idea yeah. some melody is precognitive of of some something that you're going to hear you know the next day on the street or something like that you know how do you do that i mean so like the few examples in my book are from our lyrics you know they're uh, for musicians they're like lyrics or themes mm. you know uh the same way with abstract artists it's like it's kind of hard to pin down you know what how how an abstract painting might be you know precognitive yeah. later event and, and even the artist has that i mean i have that with with music not lyrics i can always tell somebody when i wrote a lyric how i wrote it why i wrote it what i was trying to do with it but with music i mean it it, it comes in unannounced most of the time right right and and, I, and my memory is not very good to, to to be able to recall how or what was going on you know Right. Happens. So that's really interesting. So there's like a, a timelessness almost about the kind of form of, of music yeah. in a way. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, 
yeah, I would love to find a way to study, you know, precognition in like just, you know, pure sound, music, pure, pure sound. And I have no idea how anyone would yeah. do that. I mean, I leave it up to. <laughs> leave That's it up to what I felt and, like with, sorry, um, uh, with the start with the sound song, it was, was that we know so much about uh, um, imagery. You know, and even using you know video uh, editing software and stuff like this, it's so understandable. I well, I, I think it is, and um, and most of the people that I work with too. When you use software for music, it's also all visual, right? <laughs> it did, it wasn't in the nineteen seventies. You know, nobody was using right. screens, so you know. Uh, and, and and I don't think it's a bad thing because you know, music software is just unbelievable, and what we can do is incredible. But it's it's interesting that it's had to be visualized to be able to be communicated in some way. And I think that what you're talking about, we haven't started to um, explore yet, maybe. Well, one of the things I talked about in my DreamWork book a bit is that the people, in order to understand time, we have to turn it into space somehow. Somehow, and it's kind of what you're talking about with the eye head. I mean, it's like you're like to wow to understand music. Now we have this device that can translate it visually for you. But that's what you're talking about with with video edit, like with with music editing and video editing. You're turning it into something spatial that we can then think about because yeah. we're good. As as a species, we're good with space and good with like uh, thinking in terms of space. We're really bad at thinking in terms of time, but I'm but I'm sure that it's different. I'm sure that some people are better at thinking in terms of time, and I always think music musicians are obviously going to be like much better. Uh, and I'm I would love to ask yeah. you about you know what if you've kind of put two and two together with your autism diagnosis and. Mm and your your musical talent because i wonder if you know there are just some people some walking among us such as yourself who who are thinking more in terms of time and are able to do that in a way that most of us uh flatlanders can't can't do and mm -hmm. almost that's kind of part of what i how i was reading your eye head thing it's like it's not just you know i don't i don't know if it's if it's just a cultural thing that we are you know, losing touch with music. I think, uh, I think music is there's something a little bit alien. I think about music to to most of humanity. I mean, we love it. You know, I love music, but I can't begin to talk about it, or understand it, or understand what yes. I'm doing, or you know, music. Talk about music theory to me, and I'm like, this is just greek i mean i just you know I, I, it is just so beyond my ability to understand it's, it's music theory is kind of greek to me a lot of the time as well. <laughs> but i was just reading a thing this reminds me i was reading a thing the other day about hans zimmer you know the, mm. the music that apparently he doesn't read music no he doesn't no. yeah and it's like you know he's he's like <laughs> yeah he just has to communicate it in some other way to to his musicians and stuff i was like that's yeah okay. and and that's quite common i think i mean really? i i don't either and um i understand notation um but the the classical musicians that i've written for um they they, they get my sort of <laughs> my own language uh -huh. luckily i've been working with the same um violinist for years so he understands what i mean but um yeah it uh sound 
sound is um it, it's still much more untapped than than visual you know imagery i think it's just working in a dimension that that human human cognition is not good with you know i think there's mm. a reason we don't understand causality and let alone retro causality and precognitive things like that we're time you know we are all like really like bears of little brain when it comes I can't, to i can't time. wait i can't wait to, to to read this book though oh you'll love it i mean there's so many so many cool examples from the arts that that and have you gone through all kinds of artists like yeah. musicians so painters a lot of and... writers painters um filmmakers yeah uh, um, uh you know some examples that people will have you know if you've done any research on precognition before you might have encountered these examples before but a lot of them are totally new that no one you know i feel like i'm i think i'm the first person to identify these examples you know yeah uh, uh, you know, like Andrei Tarkovsky, the 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 Russian filmmaker. I don't know if you know his work. Yeah, I know Tarkovsky. Yeah. Um, uh, you know his film Stalker. You know the the great science fiction masterpiece by by Tarkovsky. Well, you know, it it in so many ways foreshadowed the Chernobyl disaster six years later. Mm. But what people don't know is that it also foreshadowed his own cancer death and the death of his lead actor from the same cancer, um, wow. which were probably caused by filming Stalker uh, in, in, in this, they were filming in this tech toxic Estonian landscape. They was like right down the, the, the from a, like a chemical plant. A lot of the people got sick on the, on, the, on the shoot and they had to reshoot it a second time because the, something happened to the film stock. And uh, so both his, his lead actor wound up dying of cancer two years later, and then he got the same cancer a couple years after that. And there's a parable in this. The centerpiece of the film is a parable about this master stalker who who like led his brother to his death in the zone, you know, that that kind of landscape um, uh, because he misrecognized his greatest wish. And it's like it's like, oh, my God, this parable is exactly telling what happened to Tarkovsky and his actor um, as a result of Tarkovsky's obsession to film Stalker in this polluted landscape. I is mean, this a chapter? Is this, this is a, a whole... Yeah, it's one chapter in the book. I mean, there's so yeah. many, so many amazing examples of this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. My favorite, I'll, let me share my favorite. This is right from the introduction. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, I'm sure you know the film Spinal Tap. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the you know the 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 descent of the tiny stonehenge monument onto the, <laughs> you know all right well six months before spinal taps release um uh black sabbath released an album uh, with, with which had a song called stonehenge on mm -hmm. it and they were going to have as part of their stage show a big Stonehenge monument. Uh, and the company, they accidentally delivered the instructions for the Stonehenge monument in meters instead of feet. So the, the monument that was delivered to them was like nine times too large. And it, wow. couldn't, it couldn't even fit onto the stage. Now people black, uh, so, so, so heavy metal insiders assumed, people who knew this assumed that Spinal Tap had been like basing that scene on what yeah. happened 
Sabbath, but they had actually filmed that scene, a version of it. The, it the film was already done and they had actually, they had even included a version of that scene on a demo reel like years My before. goodness. And, and like, it's exactly, it's, it's, it's like exactly the same thing that happened. To it's like, it's unbelievable. It's unreal. But these things happen all the time, Tim. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, the, the problem is, you know, you'll, you'll see an example or two in an ESP book or something like that. And, oh, isn't that weird? But, you know, when you, when you see one example on its own, it's easy to go, well, okay, maybe it's coincidence. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, different people have different responses to this kind of thing, don't they? I'm one of those people, as you probably know, that just feels it's a confirmation that there's, there's a, there's some kind of cosmic meaning to it all. Uh, I don't know what it is, but I don't mind these little these little things keep cropping up and 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 making me feel that there's a there's a reason for it. <laughs> you know? But but what what do you feel? Because you're driven oh, think, by this. I think this is just an unrecognized uh, component of our cognition. Honestly, I think that this is this is a part of our psychology that has just been swept under the rug for three centuries since the Enlightenment. So. Precognition, what we're talking about, okay? This is an example of a larger category that we now call retrocausation. That is the future causing the past in some way or another, okay? Um, now, there's an older term for that, which is teleology, okay? Now, back in the day, uh, back in the day of Sir Isaac Newton and his friends, Teleology, you couldn't say that word without there being an assumption that you've, if you were talking about the future causing the past, then you were somehow talking about God's plan, all right? And the new rule for the Enlightenment and the new rule for science, when, when science as we know it was just getting started, was that you have to leave God out of it, okay? You've mm -hmm. got to leave God out of your equations and it's no fair bringing like divine intervention, divine anything into your picture of the natural world, okay? So with getting rid of God, they got rid of any idea of teleology, that is to say the future influencing somehow the past, okay? A kind of backwards causation was just jettisoned from science. And it has been part of the... Um, education, I guess, of any scientist from then till now, that anything that is not causal, you know, mechanistically causal, that is to say like a billiard balls hitting each other in sequence, that kind of unilinear forward causation, okay? Anything that some somehow smacks of something else like retro causation or teleology is just verboten okay so scientists are sort of indoctrinated from from the get-go in we do not accept you know anything that is not causal in the sort of usual common sense meaning of that term mm -hmm. now that has really uh uh influenced I mean, it, that's been great. I mean, the sciences over the last three centuries have accomplished extraordinary things, un undoubtedly. Um, and we have the sciences to 
credit for us being here. You know, I mean, you know, everything, medicine, everything else, it's you know, our iPhones, all the, all the, your iHead, it's a product of, of, you know, mechanistic physics for the, for the most part. But uh, about, about a century ago, um, that kind of picture of causation, that, that things are deterministically causal going from past to future, that broke down with the first quantum physicists, okay? Because what they discovered was that at least on the smallest scales in nature, when you're talking about particles, like photons and electrons, things like that, you can't exactly predict uh, what a, what a knowing everything about the, the past of, of an electron, you, you think you should be able to predict where it's gonna go next, but you can't because there's a random element or what they, what they thought was a random element. And this was, um, it sort of became the dogma of quantum physics that there's this random uh, random thing. So you can't predict any, like a, a single object, you can't predict exactly what it's gonna do. You can predict objects in the aggregate. Like you can predict, you know, very accurately, you know, what an object made of atoms is going to do, but you can't predict what a single atom is gonna do very exactly. And, um, and Einstein, who I think is going to emerge as the hero in all this yet again, Einstein didn't, wasn't buying it. He said, he, he said, God does not play dice. Okay. He did not buy that there was this, that was, that randomness was really part of nature. There was something we were missing. And over the years, various kind of, uh, rogue physicists have agreed with Einstein. There's something we're missing. And there have been various theories about what it might be that we're missing. But one of the one of the theories that's growing in popularity right now is that we're missing retrocausation. There's a component in causality that is from the future. What that means is that like, okay, even if you know, you know, everything that like, even if you know about everything about this particle that hit this one other particle, in order to know where that particle is going to go, you have to know about the next thing the particle hits, because that's somehow influencing its trajectory too. You know that there's some way in which a particle carries information in both directions through time. Okay, and it's like it's really hard to get our heads around this. It's really, really yeah. hard stuff. I mean, it causes headaches. You know, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of getting you know you know. Advil to sponsor my book, my, my next book, because, because, you know, you need, you need like, you know, aspirin or, or ibuprofen to like deal with, deal with like causal, you know, things going backward, you know, causes going backwards in time and, and so on, because, you know, we're not good at that. It goes back to what mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier about the human brain is just really not suited, you know, at least the, 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 um, uh, neuronormative human brain is not suited to, mm. to, to dealing with time, you know, even going forward, it's hard enough thinking just in terms of causality, but retro causality, whoa, it's like, it's just like, we're not good at that. Um, but, uh, nevertheless, it's looking more and more to more and more physicists, like, yes, this is part of nature. There's this retro causal component in nature. And if it's part of physics, if it's part of the physical world, then, wow, the thing about life is that if it's there, life will capitalize on it somehow. 
So, you know, I, I think, and I'm not the first to say this, that, that, that one of the secrets to how life arose originally may have to do with uh, certain organic compounds being capable of kind of responding to their future uh, in some way. Yeah. And, uh, and there's evidence that one of the common uh, molecular uh, constituents of neurons may have this, this quantum computing component or the quantum computing ability to it, yeah. uh, which would explain, which right there would explain everything I'm talking about in terms of precognition, precognitive dreams, precognition as a kind of memory for things future. Uh, and so that's where my money is at, that, that, that uh, a future quantum neuroscience that's you know maybe 10, 20 years off right now is going to be able to tell us why and how this happens. But the mm. point is it manifests in our lives. You know, and anyone who pays attention to their dreams in any kind of serious way, uh, uh, like Kate, you know, they know this. This happens all the time. Mm. Uh, dream things that that are about to happen to us, or we dream things that are going to happen to us, you know, two decades down the road, but on the same day of the year, you know, these weird kind of coincidental things. Um, and we are, and in all kinds of other ways that Freud called the unconscious. It's, I think the unconscious is just our future consciousness influencing us in the present. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Uh, it's also interesting to me that I find this quite easy to understand, whereas, you know, uploading is really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you're neurodivergent. And I look, I think you're a musician. And I think I would, I would love to talk I want to talk more to you and I want to talk to other musicians too, because now I'm starting to think that, you know, there are people who walk this earth who understand this stuff a little better than. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't forever. do a lot of day to day tasks well. I mean, I've got to be honest. If, if it's not to do with making music, it's, it's kind of, it's, everything's really challenging for me. Um, in my brain is, doesn't do the things that I've I'd like it to do, and uh, and I, I because I've had so many meetings and and um, you know and some counselling and understanding about autism and catching up on what that is after not knowing all my all my life, um, I I don't feel so bad about it anymore. So it but it's it's making me a bit more hyper focused on the things that I I I can manage. I just find it really surprising that this what you're talking about really sits comfortably in my head um, with something. I think it's because I look at I do look at the uh, life on a timeline, and I I can I do look at the future as 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 a as a place like you were talking earlier about spaces. You know, um, it it if it, it feels quite um, tangible to me at all times yeah didn't you tell me like in our conversation a couple of years ago didn't you tell me about some weird like time loop that involved like you maybe i'm making this up or I'm conflating something but you told me like you spent time at a monastery right and yeah in in thailand thailand right and wasn't there some time loop time loop kind of involving that or am i making that up i'm trying to remember when i discovered who my father was i mean there was a massive coincidence in the fact that i i you know i went there 
um, for a kind of a detox and um, rehabilitation, uh, really like the, the lowest point in my life. Um, and then ended up, um, oh, yes. So it's a, it's a, yeah, I remember. I know what you're talking about now. Um, I was kind of adopted uh, by the abbot of the monastery in a way. He gave me a home in the monastery and um, Longpo Cheran Panchan, he's called. Um, he he died in 2007, but um, uh, he divined who my father was, and he was right, and so I found my father to be with him. He was what you'd call clairvoyant, I guess. Um, that, and that's not just with me. He did this with a lot of people in Thailand. And um, did you tell him then? I mean, did you give him? Did I didn't you tell give him, him any information. No. Um, I was about, I had only been at the monastery for three weeks and some of the high monks had said, before you leave, if you've got an important question about your life, ask Long Poor. And I thought, I'll ask him if he knows if my father's alive or not. <laughs> my mother, you know, met my father once and um, for a very specific reason. <laughs> she wanted to have a baby, you know. Um, and... Uh, and so I I grew up not knowing who he was, and she didn't really remember exactly who he was either. Uh, but Long Po Cheron Panchand in Thailand, when I was twenty eight, did know who he was, and um, and it, yeah. So I'd asked him about all of that, and um, and he he just proceeded to tell me your father lives in America and he's alone, and you should meet him, you know, and. Uh, I didn't really want to meet my father. I I didn't I didn't have a feel I didn't I never felt like I had a bit missing, you know. Um I grew up with two mums and they're amazing. Um but I but I so and I said this to this monk. I said, I I thank you, but I you know, I don't I don't need to meet him. And he just this monk is sitting there, just looked me deeply in the eyes and just said, It's not for you. It's for him. <laughs> it was like, okay, I have to go and do this. And I, so I went on this great trip to America to um, meet my dad for the first time. And then he told me, on, after I'd met many members of my family that I never knew I had, they're all Indian, uh, really beautiful, soulful people and welcoming of this <laughs> estranged being um he took me into a in, into a room and just said i have to tell you um i'm like you i don't know who my parents are and and i said what do you mean i thought i just met all the family and you showed me a photograph of your grandparents and uh, my grandparents and uh, said no no um they are they are your family and everybody welcomes you now tim uh, but i think it's right i tell you i i was I was adopted. I was rescued into this family, and uh, I, I, you're the first blood relative I've ever met. And uh, at this point, I think he was nearly seventy, and it was it. That was just you know, the wildest, weirdest thing that had ever happened to me, you know. And um, and then and then. The, the monks at the monastery had said that strange things would happen because of the the practice, the Buddhist practice that I'd 
sort of become part of with them when I lived with them. And uh, when I went back to England, they sent me to Stonehenge to do prayers. And uh, and when I got back from Stonehenge, I had a dream that I was flying over. I think this is what I told you. I was flying over an area of London called Kilburn, and it felt real. It didn't feel like a dream. It felt like I was really flying. And I saw a young girl crying, and she was clearly in distress. And um, I, I tried to kind of reach her to help her, but I couldn't. Anyway, next morning, woke up went to get a newspaper for my mother from a shop around the corner and uh, and the, the the front page was a photograph of that girl and she'd um she died in uh, a kind of a drug gang war in kilburn and uh, and that yeah that was that was what i told you about i think that there was a real kind of and um and I and I immediately thought I could I should have done something I could have done something, you know I knew about this and it was like you couldn't you were in bed. <laughs> no, and the, the only the reason you dreamed about it was because you were going to read that story the next morning. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't what I was actually asking before was did you tell the abbot about this afterwards? Yes, I called the monastery immediately because I was so freaked out. I thought I would see things like this forever. <laughs> he said, is this how it's going to be now? I've just been doing like, you know, a month, a couple of months of of prayers with you guys and and mantras and, and very uh, sort of magical practice, which is particular to that monastery. And they said, no, no, it's because it's strong in you at the moment because it's new to you and that you won't have this and and it, and it, and nothing like that's happened again some other things but not as powerful as that yeah did you tell the abbot about your father after you met him oh yeah 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 i think they were all really thrilled they saw that as completing a karma as well right. that it wasn't about my journey it was about helping him with his right he grew exactly. up never knowing and anyone who that he was related to, even though the amazing family that he grew up with, um, and that was, I think, something that he needed in his life uh, for whatever reason. I don't know. I didn't know him, you know. Uh, so yeah, well, idiom I think is a very compassionate. Like I love that compassionate Buddhist way of of seeing, <sighs> and I think it's a it's a really maybe without Buddhists often knowing it, it's a way mm. of understanding this time loop that I'm talking about, these time loops. And it's a, but it's infused with compassion. And that's what I think is is key. One of the precogs that I have worked with a lot, uh, she's amazing. Like she, her dreams are just beyond belief. I mean, she precognize, precognizes everything in her life essentially. And, but she talks about, uh, care. I mean, her, that's the idiom that she uses is care and how like engaging with your your older self and with others through care is somehow activating these loops. <laughs> and I think it's a, it, it very much resembles a kind of Buddhist kind of karma, uh, compassionate Buddhist karma. Yeah, ten, tending to uh, yourself and yeah, all, yeah, yeah, yeah. all the different versions of yourself on different timelines. 
and that which we've talked about before but um but ten but but ten, tending to other people as well in, in a way where you start to complete each other's um, yes i don't know what it is needs we're all like peers and we're like we need each other to kind of like move forward mm. you know eating each other's circles somehow you know yeah yeah it's a beautiful beautiful story uh, that part uh yeah you you had told me the part about the girl i you told you that i didn't told you what I'd, yeah <laughs> that i'd gone through this whole sort of self-discovery that i thought was to do with me it wasn't really it was to do with me facilitating a part of my father's journey I'd say. Yeah, that's incredible yeah wow oh well I, we, you know we can finish off where we started off with which is i can't wait for you to see indiana jones <laughs> yeah no no i was looking it up between ours uh, oh no I, don't I spoil it i was looking i was like yeah i need i do need to see this movie yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I just rarely see films of that those big budget films and um and uh, and experience them connecting me to all the kind of things that we've been talking about. Yeah, it, but it, it really does. It's That's wild because it's so mainstream, you know, right. big bu budget. Hollywood. I wasn't even thinking of seeing. I just like Indiana Jones, like Harrison. Yeah, yeah. He's like, I don't want to see that, but now now I totally want to see it. So. Yeah. I'll it's brilliant and seeing the kind of things that we talk about concerning time loops and retro causality and all these things with harrison ford in the role <laughs>